Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. John Clement is an artist based in Brooklyn and works out of Long Island City in Queens. After receiving a BA from the University of Pennsylvania in 1992, Clement studied briefly at New York's School of Visual Arts before moving on to work with Mark DeSouvereau and John Henry in the 1990s. In addition to numerous gallery exhibitions, Clement has also completed many public commissions and installations across the United States and abroad. His large-scale sculptures deal with line, movement, and form and color. I caught up with him at his Long Island City studio, and we discussed the unconventional entry of his life into sculpture, the logistics of his work, his influences, and much more. Here's our conversation. Yeah, so a great place to start is not where I grew up, but where you grew up. Uh, Where did you grow up? I grew up the first part of my life north of Boston in a little town called Marblehead, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And then in seventh or eighth grade, I can't remember, we moved to Long Island, Huntington, Long Island, which was a bit of a change. But it was good for me because that, you know, I was sort of a late bloomer. And when I was in Marblehead, I wasn't, I didn't really fit in up there I didn't play hockey everybody skates you know yeah. it's a big northeastern thing and this is suburban very suburban yeah. I mean it's a you know it I think back then it was a very blue collar fishing town yeah and since then like everywhere else on the coast it's been developed into super something else I mean I wouldn't be able to tell you because I didn't have many friends up there mm-hmm. we never went back I never went back after we moved and so Long Island was, um, it was, uh, it, it was, you know, Huntington's a nice town. It's on the North Shore. How far out is it? It's 40 miles, maybe, maybe less. Did you used to go to the city occasionally? Or was Never. it kind of, yeah. Never. You just grew up there. I was a total suburban kid, you yeah. know, water, swimming, sports, running around. North um, Shore's nice, though, isn't it? It's beautiful. I mean, yeah. I would, I, I like to visit there. Yeah. I could never live out there. It's a different, it's a different place. It's its own world, right? It's its own world. I have plenty of friends that grew up out there, and that I grew up with, and are still there. And something clicks along the way with them. Yeah. They, you know, they kind of fall into line with a lot of other sentiment out there. And right. you're like, did you? What did you just say? Really, <laughs> really having this conversation? I mean, why? Yeah. You know, I don't want to get into specifics, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's a it's, pretty it's hard. Well, once you're in the city for a while, too, it's... Actually, there, there, there was a, a, a couple of years ago, here's an interesting vignette about Long Island. A couple of years ago, my wife was in a car accident with a government official, mm-hmm. and a guy from ICE, who ran a stop sign and basically just crushed our minivan. Jeez. With, my, with Duke in the back. Yeah. And... Governments don't have insurance, they insure themselves. So we had to sue the government in order to get the case settled because right. they were like, she was at fault, you know, it was a big, big bunch of nonsense. Anyhow, during the process, our attorney was like, well, they're trying to get the case tried in Long Island 
which we don't want. Mm-hmm. We want to try it in Brooklyn. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why? Just so yeah. I don't have to drive out there, you know? He's right. like, no, dummy. He's, you know, he says, uh, historically, in cases of physical injury or where, where there's settlements involved, mm-hmm. Long Island Jerry's are like a 50% lower than the rest of the country in what they what they agreed to. Right. And I was like, well, and Brooklyn Jerry's are extremely generous. Yeah. And I was like, what's the thinking behind that? Right. And he said, well, the so the, the thought process is people in Brooklyn look out for each other, and people in Long Island don't want their neighbors doing better than they are. Oh, really? So yeah. it's that. And so there's sort of like a, you know, like, you know, oh, she got her hand chopped off in a, you know, corn ho- corn harvester. Like, she doesn't deserve $5 million. Right. Because I don't have it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the science is behind that, but right. I'm sure people on Long Island who listen to this are going to be upset about that, but <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, I don't know how many Long Island listeners yeah. I have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't have much experience with Long Island, but it's funny how it's historically tied to art, you know, like the Hamptons and yeah. you know, people working out there and stuff. But I only got that Islip uh, residency you know, at the carriage house, yeah. there, which was beautiful. It was, when did you do that? It was, um, I want to say, four or five years ago, maybe. Yeah, that's, that's a, I've, I applied for that a couple of times, I think. They closed, it's over now. Is they it? stopped getting funding, yeah. But it was, it was an amazing, I mean, I had a huge, it was the only big studio I've ever had. I didn't know what to do with it, it was so big. Well, I had a separate studio just to screen animations and like, project them. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's, I never would have I mean, that. Long Island is, 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 I mean, the North Shore of Long Island is basically the same geography as New England. Yeah. You know, it is. Yeah. It's it's beautiful, rocky same beaches. Thing, yeah. um, you know, the wa- the bodies of water are fantastic. There's there's some fantastic hiking trails. I mean, it was all farms, right? right. I mean, it was it was a lot less out there than there is now. It made yeah. perfect sense for artists to go out there to find their seclusion, to find their spots. Yeah. So. I mean, historically, there is a, a rich history of art coming in and out on Long Island, mm-hmm. but it's it, it few and far between. Now. I mean, I don't. I know that there's. I know artists that have places out there in the Hamptons that they've had for thirty, forty, fifty years. Yeah. But I don't really recall there being a movement of younger artists going east anymore. They seem to go north. Yeah, it's upstate. Northwest of the or west of the Poconos. Yep. Or Philly. Yeah, big movement down to Philly where you can, you know, get this get yeah. get more for your buck to a certain this degree. It's too expensive on the island now. There's no sort of, you know, open frontiers. I think. No, it's. Uh, I mean, it seems to go that direction. It's just everywhere, right? Yeah. Even here. I mean, we're sitting in an anomaly right now. Like right. this, this doesn't. Yeah, this happen. This doesn't often. exist anymore. It's just dumb luck. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy it while we can. Right, right. So you grew up. You moved to Long Island, and then when did you start getting into artwork or being creative? Well, I always was a, uh, I always was into drawing cartoons. Mm-hmm. I was a Mad Magazine freak. Yeah. I love Mad Magazine, those guys. Don Adams, uh, Sergio, I can't remember his last name. I used to copy those cartoons and create my own stuff from that. So I kind of went on a path of being interested in in always drawing however I also was growing into myself and I was really into playing sports yeah and in the 
in Huntington, where I grew up, the town, like the arts classes and the sports practices conflicted in times. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do both. And I had some art teachers who wanted me to pursue continuing after school programs. But I, you know, all my friends were on sports teams and I kind of had a little bit more fun like playing lacrosse and basketball than I did drawing. I could do drawing at night. So I kind of laid off it for a while and I never really stopped doing it, but I didn't really get any formal instruction. I never took any classes. And just continued to be an adolescent in Long Island. Right. You know, enjoying the enjoying the open spaces out there. And then I ended up going to college in Philadelphia and uh, taking some drawing classes there, but not a lot. And again, being an athlete, playing sport, mm-hmm. uh, studying. And then I graduated, got a bunch of job offers from reputable companies and realized like, yeah, this that's not going to work. Like, right. I don't want to go work for Procter and Gamble, <laughs> you know. Or I didn't want to go to work for a bank or anything like that. Yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to do those things. And so uh, I moved to New York City. Actually, back up for a second. Right after college, three friends of mine and myself rented a deli in Ocean City, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And we opened up a taco restaurant. This is actually an important part of the story. So we opened up this place called the 34th Street Taco Barn in uh, Ocean City, New Jersey. And I did all the illustrations for the menus, the advertising, the sign, the t-shirts. And we were just a bunch of you know post-grad college dudes running a Mexican restaurant, which was a little bit wild and fun, right. but you know, it was the beach, it was cool. Yeah. And this lady came in one day uh, to order, pick up some tacos, and she ended up being a, she was a teacher of School of Visual Arts. And mm-hmm. she's like, who did all the illustrations? And I said, oh, I did. And she's like, well, you should, you should consider, you know, furthering your career. And I was like, doing what? She said, in art. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, you should, you should go take cartooning classes. I was like, where do you do that? She yeah. said, oh, the School of Visual Arts in New York City. I said, I don't know about that. I just graduated from four-year college. Right. You know, tons of debt. She's like, oh, it's, you know. So I looked into it. It's too expensive. But I decided I would take some evening classes there. So mm-hmm. summer ended. I packed everything up, which wasn't much. Moved to the city. Got an apartment with a friend. Started taking some evening cartooning classes at School of Visual Arts. Some foundation classes here and there realized pretty young and working a million other jobs the bar back cabinet maker i was a waiter somewhere i mean it was there was a lot going on but it was fun you're young so i was young you're active and uh and uh i realized pretty quick that my skills at cartooning although quirky and weird as in like far side cartoons weren't in the same realm as these kids that i was taking classes with these kids could draw i mean i'm talking you know marvel comic perspective i mean these kids it was sick yeah and it kind of discouraged me a little bit but i kept going on just see finish the class out in fact the guy who 
taught the class was the de- was I can't remember his name. He's probably not around anymore. Was the guy who created Green Lantern? Oh really? Yeah. So he was cool, like cool, weird, old, quirky cartoonist yeah. guy, right? So one of the in need of constantly looking, you know, needing money and looking for work, I I heard through one of the faculty that there there was a job opening in the sculpture department of the School of Visual Arts. And it was at night from like 6 to 12. You were working in the tool room, handing out tools, and then shutting the building down when everybody left. So, and it paid, I think it was like seven fifty an hour or something, which was big back then. Yeah. I said, I'd take it. And so I started working there like four or five nights a week. And nobody was there at night. I mean, zero. Like the students were gone. Occasionally there'd be one or two people there. There's nothing to do. So I kind of just picked up some tools and started working, building stuff and, you know, yeah some cutting and some welding and there was a, a there's a New York sculptor, sculptor named Joel Perlman who's still a good friend of mine who was teaching there and he one day he, he was there and he kind of looks at me and he's like you know he's like who what are, who are you like what's going on here <laughs> and I explained to him that I would you know who I was and my background and he was a he, he was a bit incredulous at first because he couldn't like wrap his mind around the fact that there was a, an Ivy League graduate lacrosse player handing out tools in the schoolroom of visual arts at like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night. He's like, no, 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 it doesn't with make a, any with sense. With a side interest in cartooning. Yeah, he's like, no, I don't, that doesn't, you're not really supposed to be here. Like, right. this is not your, like, what, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. We eventually became friends, and he was instrumental in me um, because he, as an aside, he had gone to Cornell when he was younger and played sports too. So he's like never met anybody else that had sort of any sort of similar experiences with that within that confines yeah. of that place. Uh, he taught me some basic metal skills, and then I just started working and I started building sculptures, not even knowing what I was doing. Yeah, and it got to a point where I was making so much work that the the director of the sculpture facility was like you have to stop you know but pre pre-internet where you picked up the village voice and you looked in the back for spaces for right. rent yeah. and you called the number and I, I remember I found a place in Williamsburg and I called the guy and I went out on my lunch break on like the J train mm-hmm. saw a studio down on South Fifth and Berry for like $400 a month oh, gave what? the guy a check <laughs> you know the yeah. Tung Fun Noodle building yeah and then I had a studio yeah I moved everything out there, started working, still working in school of visual arts, but less. And then the same professor, Joel Perlman, about a, a six months later, after I had a really good studio practice, like learning it, he came to me and said that the, uh, the sculptor Mark DeSuvero, who I had never heard of, was looking for somebody as a live-in apprentice for his studio in, right out here in Long Island City. Yeah. I figured I'd check it out. I took the train out here. And it was, you know, it was a lot more desolate than it is now. But I, I stepped in his facility and I was like, I have to be here. Yeah. Like, this is... I'm sure it's impressive. This is the place. Yeah. I didn't even know who he was. Um, I had no idea about his level of uh, success or anything like that. Because I was sort of like a neophyte in the art world. But walking into his facility with the scale of his work and everything associated with his practice, I was like, this is a special place. Yeah. I got to stick around here. And then... It just kind of learning, learning rigging, you know, working on my own in the studio and then working for him as a rigger, uh, traveling the world, installing pieces, 
there's a lot of oral tradition in the processes of sculpture that are really almost impossible to teach in a classroom setting. So yeah. working alongside people who have been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years is How a fantastic uh, experience because you pick up these, you, these little tricks with methods and materials that you end up using on a daily basis that maybe you'd figure out on your own, but maybe not. Yeah. You know, maybe you figure out another way to do it that suits you. Yeah. I know we just spooled through a lot. Does no, no. <laughs> I, that's, to, I <laughs> kind of pass forward a little bit there. No, that's, that's a pretty good progression. And, you know, in thinking about, that's a really interesting thing, too, because in school, it's, it's almost like the work found you in a way, or at least the process of the work found you. Because, like you're saying, in art schools, there's sculpture departments, but I don't know that they're teaching this kind of large-scale, you know, heavy-duty I mean, there's welding shops, there's stuff like that, but, you know, this is something, like you're saying, that you can learn from from someone who's kind of a master at it. It's almost like it makes me feel like, it reminds me of, you know, learning, like, swordsmithing or yeah. something. It's like it's not really being taught except for by the people who, that's what they do for a living. Well, you there's, know? there are a couple of interesting comments on that because that's, I mean, you're spot on with that, is that when I first started making you know, when I first started making objects, making sculpture per se, it wasn't my dream or my goal to make pieces this scale. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's following a progression. Yeah. And, and, and also, as far as that progression goes, it doesn't have, it's it, like, I don't really sit around and fantasize about building a sculpture that's 50 feet tall. I don't, that doesn't interest me in any capacity. Mm -hmm. If a project came along and there was the opportunity to do such, I would, I would go down the path to entertain it to see how it would work. Yeah. But it's not a goal. I mean, I really like to try to keep the work within a personal scale. Right. You know, once you go above like 10, 12, 15 feet, really becomes architectural and monumental and it's totally worldly. different totally yeah. different animal but it is kind of fun to see how the work changes in that venue yeah but i know what you mean it's not like you're setting out to just make you know i just want to make gigantic sculptures but at the same time if you, that if that becomes a possibility to do something big it's kind of cool to see it yeah you know when we used to when when i lived in mark de Suvero's studio and we everybody would leave at night and we'd wander around uh, 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 there's a, a, a great friend of mine named Peter Lundberg who's an incredible sculptor and he we lived out there together and Mark would leave everybody would leave and we'd wander through his studio and everybody knows him for his large scale big monumental pieces out of I-beams and they're pretty fantastic for, for, for their scale and their movement and their gesture but some of his small work his tabletop pieces out of flame cut twisted yeah. and bent steel that spin and move are some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Yeah. And we'd find we'd find sculptures in that studio that no one that had no one seen in 10 15 years. They'd be shoved away in the corner. Right. We would just marvel at all this work. I'm like, "Oh my god, this is amazing." Yeah. So it, it is so interesting to see that transition like there I think the spirit in both of those scales is there, but the the language is so different. Yeah. Just to uh, jump back for a second to when we talk about the progression of the work, I had lunch the other day with a good friend of mine who I hadn't seen in years, 
who we came up together sort of in Soho in like the 90s, right? Mm. He, he graduated a year before me from the same college, came here. He's a, he's a painter, a poet, and a writer, and he's, he's amazing. His name is Jeremy Sigler. He's an amazing guy. And uh, he used to work at a Nina Nose gallery in the early days, and I was living in the basement of Trisha Collins' Grand Salon, which was on 83 Grand Street, where yeah. I think Team is now. Right, yep. And it was a really interesting time to be to be down there yeah. in Soho. And I was working at a bar called Nick and Eddie's in Spring and Sullivan, and it was just a great, it was a great time. I still had a studio out here in, in, in Williamsburg. And we were kind of sort of going over uh, history the other day, and we were talking, and he, he said something that kind of, like, I found very surprising. He's like, you know, he's like, Clem, we were a little worried about you back in the day, thinking that you were, you know, chasing this dream that you weren't going to be able to attain. And I was like, what, what did you think I was chasing? You know, or what? I was like, well, can you, you know, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, we saw you going down this path where your work was getting larger and larger, and we had thought that, like, at some point, you're just going to hit the wall and you're not going to be able to do it. Yeah. And... And he's like, we're really glad you did. I said, well, thanks. But it, it was funny because that, that thought process never had, had never been in my brain. You know, maybe because the work happening larger and larger was a natural progression. And you don't, you don't go from, you know, making small scale work to, to coiling eight inch diameter steel pipe. And, you know, I didn't always own a forklift or right. a gantry crane. Yeah. You know, you learn... The learning curve at some points is steep, but once you get up it, you move to the next. Yeah. Move to the next you're, level. Well, you're trying to push your work. You yeah. Know, I, it, it was. I, it, I mean, you know, I, I just thought at that at, during that conversation, I had thought, well, that's an interesting thought because that had never entered my mind. Only because you're you're in the middle of the stream, right? Mm-hmm. You're just looking yeah. one stroke ahead. You're, you're not looking the all the way down. Yeah, yeah. You're you're just you're. Your head's bobbing in and out of the water. You don't get a whole lay of the land. Right. And, uh, you know, if it had become too, obviously, there's other ways I could have gone that probably are more physically limiting. Like, you know, I mean, I don't have a CNC router or a, mm-hmm. or a plasma cutter or stuff because yeah. that's, there were a lot less financial barriers to build work of scale with your hands and to get into some of the other processes. But... That also that stuff wasn't available really back then yeah. as, as much as it is now. Yeah, it's changed. Yeah, the ability to do. But do you welcome the change in the interpretation of your work to some small extent because there are so many new fabrication methods that your work still has that hands-on kind of like an old-school approach to it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's seen yeah, a no, little I, different. I understand fully what you mean. It, it's. Again, it's like, you know, who knows, who knows what history is going to say about anybody, right? Yeah. And who knows if the pendulum will ever swing back. The only thing that I can do, and the only thing that I really want to do or need to do is, is, is continue to have a practice that, that I feel is honest mm-hmm. and not gimmicky and and works towards what I'm trying to achieve and that 
I can't necessarily verbalize that, right? Because yeah. we have an internal dialogue in our minds about what our work means to us and who, how it defines us and who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you are your own harshest critic. So I just hope to be able to continue to work whichever, in whichever direction the work will bring me that makes me feel like I'm fulfilling my obligation to myself is, is of what I've started out to do. Right. All the other stuff that's out there, I mean, I think it's incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, it's amazing what these machines can do. These 3D printers, CNC routers, all the other stuff that's happening. There's so much of it. Even with, I mean, people ask me, have you done, ever done any casting? It's like, no, I haven't because it's not part of my process. You know, yeah. my process is, is, is real just building and then taking away. And, and I wouldn't be able to have that experience, I think, with a cast. Right. And there's also so much to learn in all those. I mean, I can't be an expert. I'm barely, in, I'm, I wouldn't even consider myself an expert at this. Yeah. I'm just, you know, people say, do you have a metal shop? It's like, no, I have a studio. Right. It's not a shop. It's yeah. a, it's a studio. Right. And, and we had to lay down some laws back in the days when we were sharing studios with people. I never let anybody build any furniture in my mm-hmm. studio and I never let anybody work on their car. <laughs> like <laughs> those are the rules. Those are the rules, right? Yeah. This is not a shop. This right. is, we're not making 25 chairs. I mean, luckily, Luckily, I never had to do that. Right. If I had had to, like, you know, take on a fabrication job, but it would have killed me because I mean, I can't, I can't deal with right angles. I just, yeah, I can't deal with exact measurements. Too constricting. <laughs> yeah. There's no. Well, it's funny because in your work, I love that, that piece that's on the wall back there. The oh, framed the, piece. Yeah. The that's a lithograph. Yeah. And um, because it keeps, I mean, that's basically what I see when I see your sculptures. That they're drawings, you know? They're just yeah. lines in space moving. It's about movement. It's about this flow. It really, I, I like, I didn't know that you sort of came up, like, drawing Mad Magazine and sketching comics and stuff because this really feels like drawing. And in the same way that there's sort of a, you would think if someone's really into linear drawings, it's like, oh, you get a 3D printing pen and you could just make 3D drawings. But it's not that, there's something about the illusion of a two-dimensional drawing that's way different than just building it up. You know? Yeah. And there's something different about this kind of like, it's not minimal, but you know, it's, it's a line in space as opposed to, you know, bringing in a cast or, or separating that process into a bunch of different layers to where it becomes less of this one-to-one and it becomes about reproduction and stuff mm-hmm. like that. These really feel like moments of line in space that, that's really interesting. Well, that's, I mean, that's almost... That is a very good description of kind of what they are. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of negative space. There's a lot of light coming through it. I, I really, one of the biggest fears I have is overworking. You know, I, I, I don't want to overwork. There's as there's, there's much material in that piece that needs to be in hopefully not a, not a square centimeter more. Yeah. You know, that's it. Like, there's just enough material there for the, for the line to make sense. And that's it. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. And that, it, you know, for, for sculptors that like to work, that's a challenge because you want to work. You, you enjoy the process. You enjoy working. 
And sometimes when you hit a wall, you have to physically walk out of the studio and leave. It's like anything else. It's like you you want to keep working on your painting and you don't know where to go with it. You just yeah. have to put the brushes down. Right. And be like, Step I have to away. leave or else I'm going to ruin this. Yeah. Oh, it's and such that, an important part of the process. Yeah. You know, and looking it took, away. It took me a long time to to realize less is more. Yeah. And and I like to think of the work as, as having as much brevity as it can have even if it's large, even if it's a, you know, I get a lot of comments about the real large work out of the eight inch pipe that it looks like it weighs, you know, looks like it weighs nothing. It's just balancing there, despite the fact that it probably weighs like seven or 8,000 pounds. Yeah. It is just like flo almost floating off the ground. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, I had a really interesting, somebody the other night was uh, asking me, we were talking about Calder and, um, how wacky he was and his whole flea circus and everything and mm -hmm. and he had said you know he said why don't you ever do spinners or you know have your work be you know kinetic right and I said you know I was like you've seen my sculptures right and he was like yeah he knows my work very well I was like where's the, you know how do you transition the line into that it's 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 something that I've you know, I'm not outright ruling it out, but the transitions in sculpture are so important, the transition from one spot to another. It's what makes kind of Mark's DeSouvreau's small pieces so fantastic, is the transition from the base up into the piece and all the movement up top is so fluid. Yeah. It's not like he's made this sort of like plinth and he puts something on it and then he puts a spinner on it and then it yeah, just, you know, yeah. doesn't make, it, it, it's, it's, as a unit, it's, uh, it's just so fluid. And, you know, when you go from implied movement to actual movement, you really got to be careful about where that transition takes place. Even hang, you know, even like I've never really suspended any work from any ceiling or in the air because I'm just so concerned from where that cable is going to attach to the sculpture yeah. and be the transition point. And, you know, if I could, you know, I'm still playing around with the idea, but just, as it just you know, you understand what I'm saying. It's like yeah. the, the transition, where the work, like in this piece right here, this red piece, comes off the base. That I feel like that's a very smooth, elegant transition from a geometric cut up into the air. Yeah. And uh, that's an important part of the sculpture. Right. Yeah, but maybe it's something drastically different. It's funny because I keep staring at this hanging, and I love the way the chains enter the piece. Yeah. And it's not this kind of, um, there's no suspension to disbelief, like, you know, there's hidden things holding it up. It's just kind of there. Yeah. And I was thinking about when you were talking about kinetic, um, an aspect of a kinetic movement to the sculpture, like in, in these lines, if they were moving, it's kind of what they're doing without them moving is implied movement. Mm -hmm. But if you had something like that, that's like slowly lurching back and forth, or there was a movement with wind or something you know what I mean? That could there could there be different ways of doing that, I guess, that weren't that sort of first dimension of movement. But, yeah. But then you never know what it's going to do to the piece. And this one behind you, this kind of like I don't know if that's all one piece there. But that's a couple of just that's a couple of coils we I just did and just sitting off to the side, seeing yeah. what happens with it. You know. But I keep picturing those because the way the table is here, of those being in water and you're only seeing like the top parts of it or something. Oh, yeah. And I'm, and then I'm sitting here imagining like, oh, what would the reflection do to that? Or things yeah. like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like 
So there's all this movement that can happen around the piece or in your mind. And that's really what that's doing. Is yeah. your, your mind is putting together the movement. It's connecting the gaps in between the line. That's, that's kind of all part of the piece, I think. Yeah, and in, in the, in, in the way your eye moves around the work is oftentimes, even though you know, I'll have built these things alone, and I'll be looking at it, and I'll say, okay, this piece comes over here, and right, where's it go? And I'll have to like go over yeah. and physically trace it with my finger because it gets lost in the whole piece. Yeah. And I have such intimate knowledge of this material, having right. put it together, right. that once it all becomes sort of a whole, once it becomes its own personality, you know, I, my, my own eye gets lost in there, and I'm used to looking at these things. Yeah. So maybe, well, maybe that's the reason. Well, what a, another question I wanted to ask you, too, was when people look at, you know, artists' work, they, they'll say, oh, you must be into blah, 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 you know, a certain handful of people. I'm sure you're into, you know, like Calder and Newman and uh, Alice Hycock, like people like that. But who are some other people that you kind of look to or, or not even artists, but the visual stimulus that kind of fuels your your work well one of the one of the things that i think i really benefited from was the fact that i had less than zero art education mm -hmm. and when i came into the world of sculpture or art three-dimensional work i didn't i was for a, for a very formative period of time, I was very free to do whatever I wanted to do without historically referencing who had done it before me in certain certain area. Yeah. One thing I did know at, at the very beginning was that working with I-beams was out of the question because, you know, living out there at DeSuvero's place, right. he basically owns the I-beam. And yeah. I-beam is a pretty fantastic element to work mm -hmm. with. It's really, it's very cool. It's so strong, it's great lines. And having limited, you know, not being able to use that material, I'm, I'm not sure if that, what direction that sent me in, but I started coiling steel at, a, at, a, at an early, you know, coiling rebar uh, in an early stage and welding together these very busy structures mm -hmm. of coiled rebar and then sheathing them, you know, like covering them the outside with expanded metal so you could kind of see in. And as a progression, if you think about it objectively, it's really interesting because the, 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 the exterior geometric shapes have now ended up on the floor and the mm -hmm. interiors have been pulled out and now become a major part of the piece, like the, the subtle arcs and the coils that were inside that were buried by eight million other right. you know, busy work things. These early pieces that I have are just, they're insane looking. But as far as, as, far as influences, I didn't really, I mean, you know, some of the, DeSuvero, John Henry, who I've worked for as a rigger, these more inspirational, more inspirational to me as individuals right. than as um, visual Just directions. Just their work, yeah. Um, I mean, Calder, obviously, Anthony Caro, but I didn't, you know, I. I very rarely would go see a show that that I walked away saying like I mean in a sense in a sense the people that I would go see in their work just the fact that they were doing it would be an inspiration yeah very 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 seldom would I see work and want to emulate that mm -hmm. or I mean I do you know Bernard Vinet obviously is 
a lot of people put parallels between our works, but they're so vastly different. All you got to do is look at the materials, and you know the whole process is different. But some of his um, uh, some of his large line sculptures are pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, and and also being working on the river when we were at Socrates. There's just a lot of, you know, being near a body of water, the constant swirling of the eddies, and it's, it's more, more along the lines of just sort of experiencing the whole world as, a, as an inspiration, as cliched as that sounds. There mm-hmm. was no art stars that I was sort of looking up to, if that right. makes any sense. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand. I mean, there's something very universal, too, about this kind of form and line and space that you interact with and I think it's why it's interesting that you're talking about that one-to-one physical space that a person has with an object when it's around your size or slightly bigger yeah and it totally engages your just like architecture it engages your sort of sense of placement and your scale and your physicality with the work well if you think about it anything larger than like an elephant Mm -hmm. because is, is you start to lose your personal scale. Think about an infant, a grown-up to an infant is about the size of an adult to an elephant. Yeah. So th- that scale is always something that you can still have a, a, a bit of a familiar relationship right. with. Right. And once it, like, you know, like this building is just too big. Right. This is a yeah, structure. Yeah, it is weird. Like, you feel you're very conscious of the space when you're in it. Right. And just how high those ceilings are. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like normal or like this like there's never ceilings this high above my head (laughs) you know what I mean yeah even if you're in a really big building the ceilings are low or above average but not this high you know this is a big steel and it's fun to even you know climb up there on that shelf and look down at the studio from above is what I'll do often and you get a different perspective from up there and it's also about like 15 degrees warmer once you go up like 10 feet and in the summer in here it's just i mean we're lucky we're doing this today because if we tried this one it was 100 degrees yeah we'd be melting right now yeah you don't have this thing you don't have AC big enough for this thing (laughs) yeah this the 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 the, the extremes like in a building like this with a concrete floor and steel it's usually 10 degrees hotter than it is outside and 10 degrees colder in the winter inside than it is outside yeah. because you've got no sun and everything just cools off. But, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's still a great shop. It's part of, it's, it's part of what you ha- the trade-off for when you want to work with large-scale stuff. Right. you gotta, yeah. you got to sweat it, it out a yeah, little bit. exactly. Freeze a little bit in the winter. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, what's the largest piece that you've done in this space? Or the tallest, I should say. Uh, because you do have height in here. Yeah, I mean... But then but, getting it out, I guess I guess you can only go so big, right? Well, you know, the I'm also limited my, my forklift with the boom. I have a, a lift capacity if I flip the forks. I think I can max out at like 18 feet on that. Yeah. So I've built some... You know, and, the, and that door is... is uh, pretty high enough to move out the large stuff but you also when you're when you're when you're building one other aspect about sculpture especially larger stuff is you know you have to deal with the the logistics involved in the physics and this piece that I just installed in February in Manhattan it had to go through a door that was 108 inches tall and 72 inches wide and Mm -hmm. the piece was the piece when put together was I think 17 or 18 feet tall 14 feet wide and 32 feet long so and when you have these coils you don't necessarily want to have to cut the coil right because there's so much 
muscle memory in this work when you sometimes when I'm cutting the pieces from the mill or that I've coiled myself, they'll spring like an inch, yeah. you know, and that's a lot of movement and a lot of force. So it is, it is a fun, it is part of the process and it's part of what, is, you know, sculptors usually take pride in is being able to build these pieces to go where they need to go, to get them installed without leaving a scratch, put them together so it looks like they just materialize there. Yeah. And, and that is where, going back to some of the oral tradition that you learn along the way from working from people that have been doing it for 20, 30 years, the, tech, the tricks, the techniques. Yeah. Um, it, and, and then when you work with specialty rigging companies, it's fun to sort of compare notes with those guys. And, right. you know, they think that they, it's usually fun working with them because they roll in thinking, you know, I'm just another flighty artist and they're going to have to do everything. And meanwhile, I have it, have it all mapped out and they're like, holy cow. Like, yeah. Where'd you learn to do that? That's cool. We're going to use that in our, you know, that's, we never thought about that. So yeah. it's kind of fun to, to show your, show your chops in that degree. And then, you know, you're building a sculpture yeah. you're putting it together and it's really, it's, it's a fun process. It can be, it can be stressful. There's some, yeah, some I, stressful moments I where you're imagine. like, is it going to fit? Is it going to fit? Right. This is is it too heavy or is it, you know, like, yeah, well this, this piece we did for Manhattan was right over the six train. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it didn't weigh that much. It, it, and in its entirety, I think it weighed like maybe seven or 8,000 pounds, like spread over a large area. Yeah. But we had to meet with the MTA engineers and find the beams under the floor and make sure we were catching the beams. And it was like, I was like, meanwhile, we were well, with the under, we were well under the load limit per square foot. But you got to make everybody happy. They wanted to make sure. And then when we, you know, it was fun. We got to close 46th Street, bring a crane in, mm-hmm. boom the pieces over, and they rolled through the door. I think we had like literally like an eighth of an inch clearance on both sides and up top. But that's all you need, right? It's all you need. I guess so. That's it. <laughs> and it, it, I remember watching it roll through the door. I had measured it eight million times. Right. And but when still it, the anxiety is there, right? Uh, when, it, <laughs> when the first piece went through the door, I had to, I couldn't look. I'd like walk, I'd turn away and walk down the block and I came back and it was inside and I said, all right. I, I, if it didn't fit, I would have run away. Right. I would have run. What would you do with that? I would have gone, I would have left. <laughs> Pull out a belt sander. I'm done. <laughs> it's over. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. It's such a different sort of realm of variables, you know. And, and a lot of days, or a lot of artists these days, I'm going to, you know, just make a, a blanket kind of stereotype that people are doing large-scale work for certain projects or having fabricators do it and then people are installing it for yeah. them and they're just not really incredibly involved in the process well it's I mean it's it's yeah I mean you know and, and that's I mean that's okay because it's you know if you're well, especially if you're getting a large-scale public commission and you, I mean, look, shoot for the stars. You want to build something that's fantastic and huge. You've, you've physically, mentally, and financially, you could never do that. Right. You need these places the in, in place to yeah. do this work for you, like the big foundries and stuff. And they mm-hmm. do fantastic work. But it, it, going back to sort of the studio practice, unless you, unless, you know, you've created enough momentum to keep yourself going, it's very hard to sort of just jump in and start doing this. Yeah. It's almost like you need almost like 
a decade and a half of having worked up to this point in, it, in order to know where to put the work. I mean, it, it being, you know, I really enjoy my daily routine. Some, you know, I probably spend three quarters of the time down here on the floor working. The other quarter is probably up, you know, servicing phone calls, working emails. If we're heavy into a project, there's a lot of logistics planning. I mean, I really enjoy being able to talk the language of the long, you know, like the difference between a step deck or a double drop and oversized permits and knowing, you know, if I'm under 144 inches, the difference between 144 inches wide and 146 inches wide is like a thousand dollars, right? Yeah. So when you're building these pieces, you understand like under 12 is good. If you're over 12, you're screwed. How many yeah. escorts you need to get into New York? Um, how to unload? How to load and unload a trailer? Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's a fun distraction. It pulls There's you away from that. the work, yeah, and yeah. you enjoy. Uh, being proficient at it, I right. guess, right? It's you have to become proficient at it, or else you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else, or no one's going to come bring you steel anymore. And right. Like, no, you don't unload it. But it is part of the process that is, uh, you know, being able to talk to, you know, it it it, it it's fun being able to traverse, like you know, sit, sit we could sit down and have a conversation with, with you know, uh, a state, you know, a. a head of state somewhere about mm -hmm. culture and art and then I can turn around and talk to the guy from Oklahoma that just delivered my steel about his rig and the engine and what he's got going on and right. it's kind of fun to be able to go across the spectrum yeah it seems dealing, like dealing so many experiences you traverse those worlds that a lot of you know artists don't don't it's, get to do and it's, really. it's fun it's, yeah. it's interesting there's a lot there's a lot there's a lot going on out there we had this guy um, I had this trucker come in last month from Oklahoma and he he did a he did a run for me oversized load he didn't get it permitted he felt like he could pull it off got here was totally stressed like was like I'm never coming back mm -hmm. and and he was like I gotta get out of here I gotta get out of the city he's like but where can I get I need I need to bring my wife back a, a, a New York pizza right she, we gotta have pizza he's Wait. like it's gonna take a while to get there. Yeah, and he's like, "Where can I get it?" And I was like, "Well, you gotta drive up." You know, he's like, "I don't, I'm not." No, he's like, "Can I walk anywhere around here?" I was like, "No, you can't." He's like, "Forget it." I was, you know, and I need. We're talking a little bit. I'm like, "What kind of pizza do you like when you eat pizza?" And he tells me like what he likes on it. So I sneak away, and there's this great brick oven oven place up the block there, mm -hmm. too far from to walk up. So I ordered him two brick oven pizzas, and I had the guy, and I paid for it with a credit card. Just before he left, the delivery guy came up to the truck mm -hmm. with a delivery Perfect. for this guy, hands him two of these two pizzas, and he was so happy. He didn't know what to do, though. He was like, wait a minute. He's like, yo, y'all are all right here. Everyone says New Yorkers are assholes. <laughs> y'all are all right. <laughs> yeah. And then, he, and then he, he motored home, like took him like 13 hours. I get a, a text from the next day. I was like, my wife loved the pizza. 13 hours old, but it's still good, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, he's got a... I mean, those 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 big those big tractor trailers, they have four refrigerators in there. Yeah, yeah. AC units, beds, AC, you know, cable TV. It's like a moving house. Those things are... I mean, those things are fantastic. Yeah. Those those big Kenworths, Peterbilts are like... They're nice. Yeah. They're nicer than like, like a lot of one-bedrooms, a lot of studio apartments in New York City. Right. And that's... That's why you always see them pulled over, you yeah. know, in those truck stops. They could just hang out there and 
enjoy the house for a little bit. I mean, you know, there's something about the open road. We used to, you know, I used to haul a lot of my own work with my truck, and there's really, you know, I did a road trip a couple years ago. We went New York to New York to Chattanooga, Chattanooga to Atlanta, Mm -hmm. Atlanta to Nashville, Nashville to North Carolina, and then back to New York. We did 1,800 miles in like five days. Yeah. And you know, it, each spot was a de- was a deinstall, and then and then an install, and then a deinstall. We were like we were putting the work on the tractor trailers. They were going ahead of us, and it was I don't know. There's just something about being up. Being, you know, hitting the highway 80 miles an hour when the sun comes up is yeah, pretty fun. I know. You know, unless you've been up all night, then it sucks. Right. It's like you're fresh to the day and you're hauling ass and you, yeah. you know, the wind's at your back and you're in, you're just open road, no one's up. It's kind of like I really used to enjoy doing that. Yeah, it's really nice. I mean, I used to drive across the country when I was younger with friends and camp and, you know, you really see a different side of the country. That, yeah. That you yeah. can't see any other way. I mean, those big truck stops. Yeah. These places are amazing. They're amazing. Yeah, I remember there was one. What was it? It wasn't Super America. It was this, these huge truck stops that were here and there. But they would have like 50 cents ice cream cones. Yeah. They would just go there and load <laughs> up. <laughs> I also like to stop at the, uh, when we were ever down south, we had this big toolbox in the back of the truck. And I stopped at one of those giant fireworks oh, supply yeah. places. Yeah, yeah. And you know the the rule in New York is if they catch you with fireworks, illegal fireworks from out of state in your vehicle, they take your car. Oh really? Oh, it's confiscated. It's so highly illegal. Yeah, yeah. So I was a little freaked out about getting pulled over on the way back. So I I basically bought like five hundred dollars worth of fireworks. I put them in the bottom of this big toolbox and then threw everything on there, including all of our dirty clothes and everything else. <laughs> so if we ever got and then put this huge chain over it with a lock, if we right. ever got pulled over. Make it really hard for them to find. Yeah. We were once, um, back to the stories about working with these guys, we were once installing some sculptures down in the Smoky Mountains of uh, Cashers, North Carolina, this place is called. Mm-hmm. And it's basically like, it's like a, it's, it's like this little area in the Smoky Mountains where all the uh, snowbirds from Florida go in the summer Mm because it's cooler than it is Florida. So they have their New York places and, you know, they have New York, Florida, and then a lot of these people have these houses. And some guy donated a ton of money and he started a sculpture park, which was downtown, which is a very nice place. And the work in it was pretty good. But we, we had that, we were setting up the pieces one day and we had this guy show up, this crane operator showed up who was just, he was just not having it, you know, and I mean, it was he, he, short guy, Leonard Skinner t-shirt, you know, um, cut off sleeves, tattoos everywhere, big, you know, tobacco stained goatee, soul patch, shaved head, yeah, Confederate flag bandana. His name, he called himself Tater. He's like, my name's Tater. In the <laughs> beginning, like we're meeting everybody, he's like, you know, you Yankees, my name's Tater. Don't talk to me. I want to talk to you. He was just, he was such a dick. He's like, yeah. you know your crane signals? We're like, yep. He goes, fine. Don't say a word to me. Just show me where you want it. Tell me what to do. And if you don't know what you're doing, I'm going to find somebody who, who does. I'm like, all right, fine. We're like, Jesus, that guy's uptight. Yeah. So we're working with Tater all day. And nobody says a single word to him. 
and we're figure we're, we we do all these installs. My work, everyone else's. My work's the last piece to go in, and we put the last element in place. I bolt it together. I give him the signal to dog the crane down. We're all done. He starts breaking it down, pulling the boom in, gunning the engine, and I'm like I'm on the ground like making the final bolts in the base plate, and he. I see him out of the corner of the eye, he climbs over, he comes out of the cab and he comes sauntering over. I was like, oh fuck, Here comes Tater, what's mm-hmm. he gonna say? And he goes, uh, he goes, hey. <laughs> I was like, yeah, he goes, I'm Tater. I was like, I know your name, you met. <laughs> and he starts pointing to my work and everything else. He goes, I don't know what this, I don't know what all this is and I don't care what this is. I was like, okay, and he goes, but I tell you what, it's kind of nice. <laughs> He goes, I like oh, some of won, this stuff. You won over Tater. And I was like, thanks, I guess. <laughs> and he so goes, y'all take care now. And he left and never saw him again. Oh, my God. And these experiences, like, and then one of my other friends came over. He was like, what did Tater just say to you? I was like, you're never going to believe this. And they're like, wow. Well, it's the great communicator. We won the Tater. Right. <laughs> you won over Tater. Yeah. So you get to put your work, like, in that that is an example all over the place. I mean, it's not like you're just showing here in the all city or the showing world. in L.A. or whatever. You're showing all over the place. I, I believe, due to the geological placements, having work in Australia, Korea, Europe, East Coast, and West Coast, I believe the sun never sets on the pieces. Nice. That's I a good think. tagline. I think. Your- There's nothing in Hawaii. But well, you need to get on that. I need to get on that. That's a great place. I know. But I I mean it, it and, and it's one of the it's one of the real enjoyable aspects of when you get to move work. You know, when I was in Korea and we were working with these guys, working with these Korean sculptors, huge language barrier. Yeah. I don't speak Korean, not a single word. They don't speak English, not mm-hmm. a single word. But you find yourself working side by side with these men and women, and there's there's a real shared camaraderie, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody is sort of on the same page, yeah, you know, um, and it was, and then, you know, the 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 best part is, you know, you finish the install, you, the, the, you know, these group dinners, you know, you everyone's sort of like figuring out ways to communicate mm-hmm. kind of sharing ideas sharing some passion about where the work's going and then staying in touch with these people for years yeah i mean i have friends that i just heard from the other day via email that i met in the czech republic at a symposium in 1995 yeah 22 years ago still making work still sending compliments over the Love your work. It's been, you know, it's great to see where you're going with it. Yeah, and it's it's cool that so much of your work too is there for a long time. It's not like it's just up for a month. Yeah, you know, it's there for a while, which is yeah. Well, hope you know the the goal is for it to never come back here. Right, right, because you want it to go. You want it to be seen. Like all these pieces that are in here up on the shelf. I like to have work nearby, but I like it to be out there. Yeah, you want people to be able to share with it, right? And, you know, and, and there's, there's, it's not cheap to move this stuff. Yeah. You want to get it going. Right. You want it to find a home and stick around. Yeah. Exactly. So where can people, let's say for the people in New York, where can they see your work? 
out in the public realm and then maybe some other places where people could well some good spots for people to see your work well right now well forever it will be there there's three pieces that are right in midtown in the atrium of a building at park avenue Mm -hmm. and 45th street address 237 park and it's a nice big open atrium there's a big piece i built there called blue water that was site specific for that that's the piece that had to go through the door that was an eighth inch and there's two other pieces that at a different entrance to that building about about the size of this like seven or eight footers that you go into the door yeah um and that's those are very accessible because you can see the work without having to go past the security desk the security desk is beyond the work so you can just go in there and wander around and see it otherwise you other than having to get permission now i want to go see the artwork they were like no you know yeah. these, um security clearance could be i have some pieces on staten island down there on shore um i think it's shore road mm-hmm. there's a developer down there who placed a couple of my works years ago uh f- let me see i'm in delray beach texas mm-hmm. long beach chicago it's I'm, I was th- I mean there's there's a lot out there I just can't remember exactly where it all is do you have Vancouver a, do you have a map you should have a digital like a map on your website yeah. where all your different well spots. I, I have a I, I just redid the website and I didn't want to overload my designers with what I was doing yeah the next step is to have a map application interact with a map. red pin yeah and then you click on the pin and it will show you the piece in the address mm-hmm. and then write some code in there so you could click to get directions from where you are to that piece. That's cool. So that would be idea. the next uh, step. And it would be just cool to see a map with like all those dots where yeah. all the pieces are. Yeah, and it would be cool to see yeah. it, to see where they all are. I'd have to try to remember where they all are too. Right. Because they're, uh, they're all over the place. So what about online for the, for the listeners to check out your work online? What's the best spot? Uh, Just your site? JohnClementStudio.com. Right. That's my website. Sounds good. Are you a big Instagrammer? Yeah. Uh, John Clement Studio. There you go. Is that, yeah. Pretty Sounds simple. Good. Cool, man. Well, it was great to come over and talk and be in this space. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm honored to be, uh, I'm honored that you came. That's great to have you. Been a fan of the podcast. Listening to all my peeps on there. (laughs) Amazing. Cool. Thanks a lot, man. All right, brother. Bye.